You are now listening to The Last Day's Return of the Historic Faith with your host, Pastor Jeremy Anderson and Brother Matthew Marcel. This podcast is for the kingdom Christian in the end times. As aliens in a foreign land and ambassadors of our king, we proudly fly the flag with the cross as we sing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hello, brothers and sisters, and welcome to another edition of Return of the Historic Faith with Brother Matthew Marcel and Pastor Jeremy Anderson. I am Pastor Jeremy Anderson, and this is another bonus episode of Return of the Historic Faith, where I am reading chapter by chapter, Origins of Evil, Book 1, Kabbalah, and I know that it's been quite a while since you've heard a new episode. I was doing an episode every day so we could cover a chapter a day, but then uh, my wife and I both came down with a very bad case of COVID, and so I was not able to record an episode for uh, quite a while. (laughs) So I am very sorry that you all have not heard from me here on the podcast, but I want to thank each and every one of you for your thoughts and prayers and comments. I know a lot of you were praying for me because I got your emails and I got uh, messages on Messenger and I thank you so much for all your prayers and, you know, we are the body of Christ, therefore, we are Jesus Christ, true representative on this earth. It's not uh, the Pope of Rome who has falsely claimed the title of Vicar of Christ. No, God's representative on earth is not one man who has put himself in a leadership position in the false church, but instead, it is actually the entire body of Christ. You and I and every other believer and follower and citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Well, I'm not going to take up any more time um, with opening comments and statements. We're going to dive right into the next chapter of the book, and that way we can get this series of episodes and this whole book finished here in the next, well, this week, I I hope. Um, We won't, it's Saturday, so we won't have an episode tomorrow because uh, tomorrow's Sunday and I have to preach. But we will start back Monday uh, doing 
an episode every day with a chapter being read every day. So hopefully we will get finished before next week is out. And without any further ado, we are going to jump right back into Origins of Evil, Book 1, Kabbalah. I do want to say really fast before I start reading the book that if you hear my dogs barking in the background or anything like that, I apologize. But my eight-year-old son is home and he has been away at my daughter's. My He's been staying with my oldest child, my daughter, while my wife and I have battled the COVID. And he's just now come home. And <laughs> because of that, our dogs are extremely excited that Connor's back home. So if you hear them barking, I apologize. Try just um, to tune it out. And hopefully the music that is in the background will drown out the dogs if they happen to bark. All right, here we go. Origins of Evil, Book One, Kabbalah, by Pastor Jeremy Anderson. Chapter Five, Golem, Kabbalistic Sorcery of the False Prophet gives life to the image of the beast. The golem is a mystical creature from Jewish folklore. The golem is an animated anthropomorphic being that is created entirely from inanimate matter. The word was used to mean an amorphous, unformed material in Psalms and in medieval writing. The most famous Gollum narrative involves Rabbi Judah Lowell ben Bezalel, the late 16th century rabbi of Prague. Revelation chapter 13 verses 8, 14 through 15 says this. It says, And all who dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names aren't written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. We see in the verses above that the second beast of Revelation will cause all of the people alive on the earth who aren't followers of Jesus Christ to create an image of the first beast and also worship him. He's also going to have power to give life to the image of the beast. I believe that when the second beast, or false prophet as he's known, gives life to the image, he will do so with 
a combination of Kabbalistic sorcery and technology. We're going to see in this chapter that in the antediluvian times, the Nephilim used magic to bring statues to life. We're also going to see that in the Talmud, the Kabbalah, and the Gnostic Gospels, this same concept of using magic to bring inanimate objects to life is found. The golem was a creature that was made of clay and brought to life by a Jewish rabbi using Kabbalistic magic in 16th century Prague. I believe wholeheartedly that the power to do this exists and I don't doubt that this creature truly was brought to life. And as you will see in this chapter, I have very good reason to believe it will be done again in the near future. There is a story in the Talmud of a group of rabbis who go on a journey. As they continue on their journey, they become hungry. These rabbis took clay from the earth and they formed a calf from it. They then killed the calf and ate it. The Kabbalistic Pharisees in the second century determined that this group of rabbis from the Talmud created the calf using rituals from the Kabbalistic book, the Sefer Yetzirah. This teaches that just as God spoke things into existence in Genesis, that they also had the power to create life. This is literally sticking the finger in the eye of God. This is echoed in the Word of Faith movement in Christianity. The Golem will play a role in Bible prophecy, and in order to understand the role the Golem in prophecy, we must first understand the role of Freemasonry in Bible prophecy. It's easy to see the connection of how the false prophet of Revelation, who will be one of the popes of Rome, will be able to give life unto the image of the beast, and the way the rabbi in the 16th century was able to give life to the clay golem. In one of her books, Alice Bailey says the following concerning the preparation of the New Age. The three main channels in which the preparation of the New Age might be regarded is the church, the Masonic fraternity, and the education field. Regarding Freemasonry, she says it is a far more occult organization than can be realized and is intended to be the training school for the coming advanced occultist. That's quite a statement concerning an organization that has members in the pews and pulpits of churches in every single Christian denomination. So now you know that Freemasonry is the training school for the occultist, and I will now tell you what the curriculum of that school is. On page 741 in the book Morals and Dogma, Freemasonry's Albert Pike says, Masonry is a search after light. 
That search leads us directly back, as you see, to the Kabbalah, in that ancient and little understood medley of absurdity and philosophy. The initiate will find the source of many doctrines and may in time come to understand the hermetic philosophers, the alchemists, all the anti-papal thinkers of the Middle Ages, and Emanuel Swedenborg. So understanding the role of Freemasonry in bringing in the New World Order of the Beast is with understanding the role of Kabbalah in Freemasonry. It's not a stretch to believe that when the false prophet gives life to the image of the beast, he will do so with Kabbalistic sorcery. This is easier to understand looking back to something I said in the last chapter. The Jesuit order was formed by Kabbalistic Jews who converted to Catholicism to avoid being expelled from their homes and their country in 1492 Spain. This lines up perfectly when you look at the fact that the current Roman Pope was the head of the Jesuit order or the Black Pope before being elected as the current Pope. He could easily be the false prophet or second beast of Revelation. This ritual magic act has been performed since pre-flood antediluvian times. Graham Hancock talks about how the ancient traditions of Easter Island as well as those of ancient Egypt and around the world all have a magic ritual act that brings statues to life. He talks about the Maui of Easter Island and how the last of them supposedly died long ago when manna magic fled from the island never to return. Hancock says, however, in common with only a very few of the other Maui, it is believed that through ritual magic, the Maui statues have the power twice a year to transform themselves into living statues. It's hard to miss the connection between giving life to the image of the beast and this ancient Maui ritual. On a side note, the two times of year that the Maui ritual takes place is on the winter solstice and the summer equinox, which lines up with the holidays of Xmas and the pagan traditions that the Catholic Church has brought into Easter, which some say is where the pagan holiday got its name. I don't agree with this because it's only called Easter in the English language. The concept that is startlingly, startlingly similar to the way ancient Egyptian notion that statues became living images. Like the ceremony of the Maui, the ceremony of Ka brought the statue of Angor to life. After undergoing the ceremony of the opening of the mouth and the eyes, statues at Angor in Cambodia was likewise considered lifeless until they had their eyes mystically opened. The two days of the year that this ritual was performed was 
on sunrise on the December solstice and sunrise on the March equinox. The Gentile nations of the Old Testament had the same opening of the mouth ceremony for the idols of their gods. The demonic spirits would inhabit the idols for worship after the ritual. This was a practice with origins going all the way back to before the flood. The Shadim in the Old Testament are demons, and in the book of 1st Enoch we see that demons are the spirits of dead Nephilim, as I showed in chapter 1. The Nephilim were worshipped as gods before the flood and continued to be worshipped after the flood. This is what the ceremony of bringing the statues or idols to life is for. It was practice, it was a practice of worship, just like giving life to the image of the beast will be to cause people to worship the image. Make no mistake, this will be done by a master Kabbalist using Kabbalistic magic. This will be seen further in chapter 7 when we look at the identity of the synagogue of Satan. The false prophet will deceive the nations through the lying signs and wonders that he will have the power to perform. This is a clear example of sorcery and the fact that Kabbalistic sorcery can be found in almost every form of secret society, magic, witchcraft, and occult New Age ritual is further proof that the false prophet will be a master Kabbalist. Now, because today's chapter in chapter 6 was, or excuse me, chapter 5 was such a short chapter, I'm going to read chapter 6 as well. So we're going to read two chapters today. So we're going to take up uh, right where we left off and start with chapter 6. Chapter 6, Aleister Crowley, Secret Societies, and Other Forms of the Occult, based on Kabbalah. Hermetic Kabbalah is derived from the Jewish form, but is a more synchronistic system. However, it shares many concepts with Jewish Kabbalah and its sister, Gnosticism. Aleister Crowley was a master Kabbalist, a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, a 33rd degree Freemason, head of the OTO, and founder of modern Satanism and ritual magic. The son of a devout Christian couple, Edward Alexander Crowley was born in Leamington Spa in 1875. After Malvern School and Tonebridge College, he read natural sciences at Trinity College, Cambridge. On a visit to Sweden, he experienced a life-changing vision which persuaded him of his spiritual vocation. A calling which he marked by changing his name to Alistair. There's not an occult system or society today that wasn't influenced by Crowley and Kabbalah. 
His rituals were based on the Jewish Kabbalah and combined sex magic and ritual sacrifice. Crowley stated that the perfect sacrifice was a male child, eight years of age, who hadn't lost his innocence. He was known as the Great Beast 666. Para Berdero, the wickedest man in the world. Aleister Crowley was a noted and controversial occultist. He wrote widely, founded his own religious order, and designed a set of tarot cards that are still used today. Defiantly unconventional in every respect, he lived life according to his own dictum, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. The great beast 666, as he so evilly named himself, a primary concern of Hermetic Kabbalah is the nature of divinity, its conception of which is quite markedly different from that presented in monotheistic religions. In particular, there is not the strict separation between divinity and humankind, which is seen in monotheism. Hermetic Kabbalah holds to Neoplatonic conception that the manifest universe of which material creation is a part arose as a series of emanations from the Godhead. These emanations arise out of three preliminary states that are considered to precede manifestation. The first is a state of complete nullity, known as Ein, or nothing. The second state is considered a concentration of Ein, and it's Ein Sof, or without limit and infinite. The third state is caused by a movement of Ein Sof and is called Ein Sof Aor, which means limitless light. And it is from this initial brilliance that Hermetic Kabbalah says that the first emanation of creation originates. The Sephiroth in Hermetic Kabbalah is based from the Sephiroth tree of Jewish Kabbalah. The Sephiroth tree showing the lightning flash and the paths. The Kabbalistic tree of life in the Servants of the Light organization's hermetic theory, the emanations of creation arising from Ein Sof are ten in number, and are Sephiroth called singular Sephiroth. These are conceptualized no differently in Hermetic Kabbalah to the way they are in Jewish Kabbalah. From Ein Sof crystallizes Kether, the first Sephirah of the Hermetic Kabbalistic Tree of Life. From Kether emanates the rest of the Sephirah in turn. 
Jeter, one. Chokma, two. Baina, three. Da'ath, four. Chesed, Gebira, five. Tifareth, six. Netzach, seven. Hod, eight. Yesod, nine. Malkuth, ten. Da'ath is not assigned a number as it is considered to be a part of Baina or a hidden Sephora. Each Sephora is considered to be an emanation of the, of the divine energy, often described as the divine light, which ever flows from the unmanifest through Keter into manifestation. This flow of light is indicated by the lightning flash shown on the diagrams of the Sephirot tree which pass through each Sephirot in turn according to their enumerations. Each Sephirot is a nexus of divine energy and each has a number of attributions. These attributions enable the Kabbalists to form a comprehension of each particular Sephirot's characteristics. The manner of applying many attributions to each Sephirot is an exemplar of the diverse nature of Hermetic Kabbalah. For example, the Sephirot Hod has the attributions of glory, perfect intelligence, Eights of the tarot deck, the planet Mercury, the Egyptian god Thoth, the archangel Michael, the Roman god Mercury, and the alchemical element Mercury. The general principle involved is that the Kabbalist will meditate on all these attributions and by this means acquire an understanding of the character of the Sephira, including all its correspondences. Tarot and the Tree of Life, Hermetic Kabbalist, see the cards of the Tarot as keys to the Tree of Life. The 22 cards, including the 22 trumps plus the Fool or Zero card, are often called the major arcana or great mysteries and are seen as corresponding to the 22 Hebrew letters and the 22 paths of the tree. The ace to ten in each suit correspond to the ten sephirot in the four Kabbalistic worlds and the 16 court cards relate to the classical elements in the four worlds. While the Sephirot describe the nature of divinity, the paths between them describe the ways of knowing the divine. Syncretism of Kabbalah, alchemy, astrology, and other esoteric hermetic disciplines are used, excuse me, are found to be used by the Sephirotic to describe, I apologize, I have completely lost the line I was on. 
While the Sephirot describe the nature of divinity, the paths between them describe, describe ways of knowing the divine. Syncretism of Kabbalah, alchemy, astrology, and other esoteric hermetic disciplines. Okay. Orders of angels, according to the hermetic order of the Golden Dawn's interpretation of the Kabbalah, says that there are ten archangels, each commanding one of the choirs of angels and corresponding to one of the Sephiroth. It is based upon the Jewish Kabbalah, Hayot HaKodesh, or Holy Living Ones. Their names are as follows. 1. Metatron, or Keter. 2. Ophanum Wheels, Reziel Chokma. 3. Aurelium, Brave Ones, Sapkiel, Baina. 4. Hashmalim, Glowing Ones, Amber Ones, Sadikael, Chesed. Number 5. Seraphim, or Shining Ones, Kamael, Jeburah. Number 6. Malachim, or Messengers, Angels, Raphael, Tephariet. Number 7. Elohim, Godly Beings, Hanel, Netzach. Number eight, B'nai Elohim, sons of God, or Michael Hod. Number nine, the cherubim, Gabriel or Yesod. Ten, the Yeshim, men, man-like beings phonetically similar to fires. Sandalfon Malkuth, traditionalist Judaic views of Kabbalah's origins view it as an original development from within the Jewish religion, perhaps expressed through synchronetic terminology from medieval Jewish Neoplatonism. Contemporary academics of Jewish mysticism have reassessed Gershom Skolom's theory that the new doctrine of medieval Kabbalah assimilated an earlier Jewish version of Gnosticism. Moshe Idel instead has posited a historical continuity of development from early Jewish mysticism. In contrast, Hermeticists have taken the view on the origins of Kabbalah in Semitic slash Jewish mysticism, as well as ancient Egyptian Gnosticism, but in also classical Greece with Indo-European cultural roots, later adopted by Jewish mystics. According to this view, Hermetic Kabbalah wouldn't be the original Kabbalah. After all, the word itself is Judaic Hebrew over the Christian Kabbalah or the Jewish Kabbalah. 
Renaissance occultism, Jewish Kabbalah, was absorbed into the Hermetic tradition at least as early as the 15th century when Giovanni Piccodella promoted a syncretic worldview combining Platonism, Neoplatonism, Aristotelian, Aristotelianism, Hermeticism, and Kabbalah. Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, a German magician from 1486 to 1535, was an occult writer, theologian, astrologer, and alchemist. And he wrote the influential three books of occult philosophy incorporating Kabbalah in its theory and practice of Western magic. It contributed strongly to the Renaissance view of ritual magic's relationship with Christianity. Pico's hermetic syncretism was further developed by Athanasius Kircher, a Jesuit priest hermeticist and polymath who wrote extensively on the subject in 1652, bringing further elements such as Orpheism and Egyptian mythology to the mix. The Kircher Tree Athanasius Kircher 1652 depiction of the Tree of Life based on a 1625 version by Philippe Aquin. This is still the most common arrangement of the Sephiroth and paths on the tree in Hermetic Kabbalah. If you noticed earlier in the chapter, I kept referencing the lightning flashing through the Sephiroth that showed the path through the aspects of Ein Sof. Well, that was literally from the literature. But I think it shows clearly Satan falling like lightning. And instead of it being the tree of life, I think we can clearly see that the Kabbalistic tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is still the most common arrangement of the Sephiroth and the pass on the tree in Hermetic Kabbalah. Enlightenment era esoteric societies, once Hermeticism was no longer endorsed by the Christian church, was driven underground and a number of Hermetic brotherhoods were formed. With the Enlightenment age of reason and its skepticism of mainstream religion, the tradition of exoteric theological Christian Kabbalah declined, while esoteric occult hermetic Kabbalah flourished in the Western mystery tradition. Non-Jewish Kabbalah, like in Judaic Kabbalah's mainstream censure of its magical side, became a central component of Western occult magic and divination. Rosicrucianism and esoteric branches of Freemasonry taught religious philosophies 
Kabbalah and divine magic in progressive steps of initiation. Their esoteric teachings and secret society structure of an outer body governed by a restricted inner level of adepts laid the format for modern esoteric organizations. 19th century magical revival post-enlightenment romanticism encouraged societal interest in occultism, of which hermetic Kabbalistic writing was a feature. Francis Barrett's The Magus from 1801, the handbook of ceremonial magic, gained little notice until it influenced the French magical enthusiast Eliphius Levi. His fanciful literature, embellishments of magical invocations, presented Kabbalah as synonymous with both so-called white and black magic. Levi's innovations included attributing the Hebrew letters to the tarot cards, thus formulating a link between Western magic and Jewish esotericism, which has remained fundamental ever since in Western magic. Levi had a deep impact on the magic of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Through the occultists inspired by him, including Aliester Crowley, who considered himself Levi's reincarnation, Levi is remembered as one of the key founders of the 20th century revival of magic. Hermetic Kabbalah was developed extensively by the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Within the Golden Dawn, the fusing of Kabbalistic principles such as the Ten Sephiroth with Greek and Egyptian deities was made more cohesive and was extended to encompass other systems such as the Enochian system of angelic magic of John Dee and certain Eastern, particularly Hindu and Buddhist, concepts all within the structure of a Masonic or Rosicrucian-style esoteric order. Aliester Crowley, who passed through the Golden Dawn before going on to form his own magical orders, is the most widely known exponent of hermetic magic, or magic with a K as he preferred to spell it. Crowley's book, Liber 777, is a good illustration of the wider hermetic approach. It is a set of tables of correspondences relating various parts of ceremonial magic and Eastern and Western religion to the 32 numbers representing the 10 spheres or sephiroth plus the 22 paths of the, Kalab of the Kabbalistic sephiroth tree. Perhaps the two most important and influential occult secret societies either based on or use the Kabbalah. They are the Freemasons and the Rosicrucians. We will look at Freemasonry first. As stated in the last chapter, Freemasonry is both based on the Jewish Kabbalah and connected to end times Bible prophecy. 
First, let us consider the history of the Masonic movement. In some cases, the Masons trace the origin of their secret society back to the guilds of Masons who worked for King Solomon. Historically, of course, this is unintentable. In Europe, 1717 is named as the foundation year of the first great lodge. Lodges in Germany began in 1738, when Frederick the Great became a member. In the USA, I have been told that there are about 5 million Freemasons, and that's an old estimate from the late 90s and early 21st century. In Germany, their numbers are estimated around 50 to 80,000. It is impossible to describe the organization and ideas of all the lodges in the same terms. And some lodges, magic and spiritism are practiced, but there are others in which a cult of friendship and light is fostered and in which they engage in philanthropic works. What has surprised me the most in the United States is that there are Methodist and Baptist ministers, high-ranking officers of the Salvation Army, and many bishops who belong to Masonic lodges. This was one of the many reasons why I left the Southern Baptist Church. I had pastors tell me they have preached in churches where Masonic symbols were displayed behind the pulpit. pastor of one particular church said to me that if he had known beforehand that this was a Masonic church, he would not have ever accepted the invitation to preach there. It is encouraging that in, in the United States, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, has forbidden its ministers and elders to belong to any lodge. This is one observation I think it is my duty to mention, especially since I frequently have negative things to say about the Lutheran denomination, and especially Martin Luther himself. It is the experience of many spiritually alive ministers in North America that churches whose ministers are Freemasons are also spiritually dead. It's also difficult to preach the gospel in such churches. One has the impression that some kind of band has been put on the entire church. In his book, Occult ABC, Kurt E. Coach writes, There follow a few examples from my own work. Example 63. My most recent experience was a meeting with a high-ranking Mason from St. Petersburg, Florida. After I had spoken in Dr. Kenneth Moon's church, a man came to me for help who had reached the 32nd degree of Masonry. The highest grade is the 33rd, that of the Grand Master. His request was that I should help his wife who suffered from depression. I asked him to bring his wife to me since one cannot cancel someone through another. Or excuse me, one cannot counsel someone through another. 
During the conversation, I asked him about his own relationship to Christ. He then gave a vague answer saying that he believed in God. Through the questions that I asked, the conversation came around to a central point and I discovered that the man was hindered by a spiritual blockade. He was not in a position even to understand the facts of salvation in the New Testament, much less to accept them. I was unable to help this man. Freemasonry begins with Blue Lodge Masonry, which has three degrees, Entered Apprentice, Fellowcraft, and Master. Once the initiate becomes a Master Mason, he can then choose to enter either the York Rite or the Scottish Rite. One of the two rites, Scottish of the two rites, Scottish Rite Masonry is the form most practiced in the United States and is said to use the most Kabbalistic rituals. Of all the Luciferian secret societies, Freemasonry is the most well-known and one of the least known about by the public. Only the higher-ranking Masons know that the god of Freemasonry is truly Lucifer. The Illuminati found a place to hide in plain sight within the Freemasons, which is why only the 33rd degree Masons know Masonry's true role in bringing in the New World Order of the Beast. Theosophy is an occult society that is based on the two Jewish traditions, Kabbalah and Gnosticism. The Rosicrucians are a theosophical secret society. So before explaining Rosicrucianism, we should first look briefly at Theosophy. Founded in 1875 by Henry S. Olcott and Helena P. Blavatsky, Theosophy teaches the doctrine of the Ascended Masters and is where many of the beliefs in the New Age movement come from, as well as its founding members such as Alice Bailey. They falsely believe that Jesus is one of those Ascended Masters. The truth is that, like the gods of Kabbalah, the Ascended Masters are the Fallen Watchers. Theosophy combines the practices of Kabbalah, Gnosticism, and the practices of Eastern religions such as Buddhism and Hinduism. The New Age Movement, Latter-day Saints, and Jehovah's Witnesses also stem from Theosophy and use Jewish Kabbalah. The fact that there are so many members of the churches in these false Christian movements in the charismatic New Apostolic Reformation that uses so many New Age occult practices and devices such as destiny cards, which are actually tarot cards, angel boards, which are actually Ouija boards, and also being filled with the kundalini spirit shows just how much the devil has infiltrated and deceived the charismatic churches that were once Christian. The Rosicrucians call themselves a brotherhood order. The full name of this order is 
Antiquus Mysticus Ordo Rose Crucius. This Latin name means Ancient Mystic Order of the Rose Cross. The headquarters of the International Brotherhood is in San Jose, California. A colorful, glittering picture is presented of the Rosicrucians by their own account of the movement. The order claims to have its roots in the mystical schools of Egypt at the time of the pharaoh Amenophis from 1350 BC. They also claim to have been active in Israel at the time of Moses. They say that they helped with the construction of Solomon's temple, much like the Freemasons. The symbol of the Rosicrucians is a cross with a rose. The significance of these is explained in SA-17 published by the German Grand Lodge in Baden-Baden. The cross symbolizes the human body with arms outstretched and greeting to the rising sun. The rose in the middle of the cross signifies the soul of man. Rosicrucians attach this leitmotiv to the symbol. Ad rosum per crucium, ad cruium per rosum, to the rose through the cross, to the cross through the rose. And their doctrines the Rosicrucians are eager to keep themselves free from all racial, political, or religious attachment. What does the Order teach then? A pamphlet published in Baden-Baden gives the following answer. The Order teaches a system of metaphysical and scientific philosophy aimed at awakening the latent powers of man so that a person can make better use of his natural talents and lead a happier, more useful life. An illuminating introduction to the order is given in the brochure, Mastery of Life. The truth is that since it is a theosophical society, they practice magic from the Kabbalah, Egyptian mystery schools, which they admit to by claiming the secret society began in those Egyptian schools and Eastern spiritualism, such as Buddhism and Hinduism. The Rosicrucians were most likely founded in Germany and can be traced back to a German Masonic order that was founded in 1760. The German Rosicrucians began as a mystic federation which practiced magic, Kabbalah, and alchemy. If you have made it this far into the book, then you should be able to clearly see that Rabbinic Judaism is far from the religion of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Israelites of the Old Testament. That is the end of chapter 6, and in our next episode on Monday, we will start right back where we stopped today with chapter 7, The Synagogue of Satan. I want to thank you all for 
your patience in listening today and I thank you for all of your prayers for myself and my family while we battled the COVID-19 virus and I pray that you will continue to pray for my wife Brianna because she is still not over it all the way um, today is day 10 or 11 but she's still not completely over it she actually had it the worst and it's lasted the longest for her so please continue to remember her in your prayers her name is Brianna Anderson and that is going to do it for this edition of Return of the Historic Faith. And next time I will be doing another special segment that will give more um, information about the upcoming books. And I'll also give an update on... I'm going to um, give an update of the people who took the time to share um, the last episode on Facebook or I can't remember the other way I asked for it to be shared, but they um, all sent me an email with screenshots of them sharing. You can still do that. Um, I will continue to accept those emails until, let's see, I will accept emails of sharing the last episode, which would have um, been the episode with chapter... Five, I think maybe chapter 4 I think it had chapter 4 yeah because today we read chapter 5 and chapter 6 so it would have had chapter 4 so if you want to share the last episode not this one but the one before it and take a screenshot of your post on Facebook where you shared it and email the screenshot to me at remnant warrior hmm, sorry remnant warrior 84 at gmail.com if you want to send me the email of the screenshot I will continue sending books to those who email me their screenshot through tomorrow any emails I get after tomorrow though I won't be able to send any more copies because I won't be able to afford it because we still have another book we will be giving out and I will be giving the information of how to get your copy of the new book from Death to Life, the true life story of Sister Mary Callie. Um, I'll be giving the information on how to get your free copy of that book on the very last episode that we do reading Origins of Evil Book 1 Kabbalah. So you need to continue listening until we get
get to the final chapter and then we will be doing a special presentation about the books and the ministry itself and a few other things so all of this is for a really good cause you know if you haven't already heard if you didn't hear in the last episode every dollar that comes from these books is going to kingdom christian assemblies um overseas gospel outreach ministry um we've got a missions department that we are starting and we're going to be doing overseas missions work and every dollar will go to the mission of spreading the gospel overseas as well as helping our brothers and sisters who are a part of the persecuted church overseas. So keep that in mind when you share this program as well as if you buy a, a copy of the new book on Amazon, it's Origins of Evil Book 1 Kabbalah and it's I've got a new edition, second edition out in both paperback and hardback now. So um, there's a new edition of both out. All right, brothers and sisters, that is going to do it for this edition of Return of the Historic Faith. So for the Next Chapter Radio Network and Kingdom Productions, I'm Pastor Jeremy Anderson saying God bless each and every one of you. Grace and peace. Thank you.